0: Do you have you, Have you noticed what happens to you when you're waiting and waiting and waiting? I don't know about you, but I start to get antsy. I get bored. This kind of situation, though, it makes me keenly aware of my need to be constantly entertained. It makes me aware that for some odd reason, I just do not like the humdrum and ordinary act of sitting and waiting. I think just about everyone living in the 21st century Western world has undergone such an experience. Think for just a moment about the world around us. We are inundated by gadgets and shopping malls and restaurants and amusement parks, no offense Mickey Mouse, a proliferation of things and experiences that are having a profound impact on who we are. Our world is is like never before afraid of the boring and the ordinary. Last year, I remember being in an airport and seeing an advertisement for Delta Airlines, and it was, it was, it was letting you know that Delta was, was progressive and they were changing. They were focused on change. And it was a picture of a fancy new touch-activated screen on the back of an airplane seat, and the ad said, change is never being bored on board. Get it? Cute, right? But when I saw that, I was reminded of how prevalent the motto of our times has become we must do all that we can to escape the boredom of everyday life. Now, you're probably thinking that I'm getting ready to lecture you on the evils of entertainment and technology. Rest assured, I'm not. I'm the happy owner of multiple electronic devices, and I, too, prefer to have something to do when I wait for the doctor to call my name. But rather than ramble on about the soul-sucking power of electronic devices and laser lights and roller coasters, I want to instead discuss how followers of Jesus might embrace the ordinary, the everyday rhythms of life, as a means of discipleship. I said last week in the sermon series that this week we were going to talk about the habits of a disciple. And I want to do just that. In particular, I want to talk about the worship habits of a disciple. We're going to look at our passage in Romans 6 for a moment if you want to follow along in your bulletin. Starting in verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, if you continue reading on in this passage, you will see Paul's emphasis on the body He mentions the body over and over. He says things like, present your members to God. He uses the term relating to body at least five times. And what Paul is saying is that in your old life, you gave your body over to habits and practices that were sin-dominated. But new life in Christ demands that you give your bodies over to something else, to be used as instruments of righteousness. Paul says, in essence, you need to be formed by new practices, embodied practices. Notice that he doesn't say you need to rationalize or think your way into life as a disciple of Jesus. Nope. He says that we actually have to give our bodies over to a new way of life. In other words, your bodily practices matter. In our right one Eucharistic prayer, which if you ever come to the chapel services, you hear often, the priest says, we offer ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to be a living sacrifice unto thee. So what does that look like? How do we give our bodies over to a new way of life so that God can shape us into the likeness of Jesus? Jesus. I want to suggest that one of the primary ways that we do this is in our worship, in our worship. In fact, I would argue that from the earliest days of Christianity, one of the primary habits that formed character in the disciples of Jesus was their manner of worship. We have ample historical sources that mention Christians and Christianity in the earliest centuries of the church, sources from outside of the Bible, most of them are viewing these Jesus followers as this kind of powerless ragamuffin bunch of uh, people who are kind of annoying and um, they're not really spoken of very positively. And one of those accounts comes from a second century physician named Galen. Now, Galen was really no persecutor of the church, nor, but he was not fond of Christians either. And this is what Galen said about Christians. He said, you know, they're not philosophically sophisticated enough for me. They don't rely upon all the philosophy of our day, which is so important. But Galen made this observation about the Christians. He said, you know what befuddles me about them? Despite their lack of philosophical sophistication, they excel in virtue, in character, just as much as, if not more than the best philosophers of our day, I don't know about you, but I find that a fascinating observation from somebody in the early days of the church outside of the Christian world looking in. So if these Christians weren't rationally, philosophically thinking themselves into their new way of life as disciples of Jesus, what was it that formed them? I want to suggest that it was largely... due, due to their embodied practices of worship. Those practices had a profound formative effect on how they lived their lives as disciples of Jesus. Well, you say, how can I actually know that? How can I actually know anything about their worship practices? Well, it just so happens that we have access to some writings that give us a little glimpse into the worship practices of the early church. This is fascinating. Listen to what St. Justin Martyr in the second century, around the same time as Galen, writes about Christian worship. He says this, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then when the reader has finished, the ruler in a discourse instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And when we have finished the prayer, bread is brought with wine and water, and the ruler likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings, and the people assent, saying the amen. And the distribution and the partaking of the Eucharistized elements is to each. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. How cool is that? Did you not just hear our liturgy more or less described in a second century document? He says we all get together on Sunday and we hear from the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets, right? It's the liturgy of the word. It's what we hear from the pulpit. Then he says, when that's all finished, the ruler is the word that he uses. It was their presbyter, or their pastor or priest, gives an instruction or an exhortation on how we can imitate those things, right? And he's describing a sermon. Then he goes on to say, after that, we pray together with one voice. And then when we're done with that part of the service, somebody brings up bread and wine and water, and the minister says prayers and thanksgivings over these gifts, and once they have been consecrated, they're distributed to all, and then the deacons deliver to those who can't make it. Pretty cool stuff, reminds us that our tradition is much bigger than we are. But, but I think what's more important is the way that this community's character began to be reoriented by these habits of embodied worship. Luke himself tells us in the book of Acts that early Christians spent much time together in their places of worship. He says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want to suggest that these bodily practices of actually bringing themselves together for prayer and preaching and holy communion formed them in ways that simply sitting around on their own and thinking philosophically could not. It's what made people like Galen notice them. These were a people's, people whose lives had been reoriented by their gathering in the presence of Jesus. The kneeling, the standing, the praying, the sitting and listening to God's word, the physical partaking of bread and wine week in and week out were all habits reshaping the community. One author says this, The church, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. See, it's in our life together as a community that kneels in prayer, that greets one another with Christ's peace, and shares bread in a common cup, that, sh- that Jesus shows up and communicates himself to us. So here's the thing, we can never think ourselves into a new way of life. Think about this. Have you ever been at a bookstore looking through a health cookbook and you see all the pictures of the colorful vegetables and the salads and the people in those pictures are always laughing. It's really this weird thing. Uh, and there's these baked chicken breasts and all this stuff. And you think to yourself, you know what? I need to start eating healthier. I, I can do this. I should change my diet. I am convinced that I need to start eating healthier like this food in this cookbook. And you are convinced, rationally, that you should change your eating habits. And then we get in our car, and we hit the McDonald's drive through on the way home for a Big Mac and a milkshake and a large fry. And by the time we get home, that intellectual convincing we had done at the bookstore has vanished into the void, and we are enjoying our hamburger and our milkshake. Now, why is that? Because we have a routine of putting our body in the drive-through line, ordering the food, and putting the hamburger into our body, right? It's an embodied practice. And when it comes to embodied practices, actually doing something with your body versus thinking about something, the bodily practice always wins over when it comes to our formation. See how that works? It's the same with our lives as disciples of Jesus, To grow in Jesus, we have to actually engage in the rhythms of worship, of private prayer, of study, of service. Merely thinking nice thoughts about these things won't do us much good. But in a world that is so terrified of the boring and ordinary, we find this hard, don't we? We find it hard. I know I do. Because we've been habituated toward button-pressing immediacy and the constant stream of spectacular entertainment. And this inevitably has an influence on Christians if we begin to think that God only shows up in extraordinarily emotionally charged experiences. There's a reason so many churches today feel more like a U2 concert arena than a sanctuary where God's holiness and goodness are praised in the ordinary rhythms of the ancient liturgy. I heard a parable once about a man who refused to evacuate his home in a hurricane. I don't know, but he probably lived on the Atlantic coast in Florida somewhere. And after the hurricane, he was stuck on the roof of his house. There was dirty seawater everywhere. There was nobody in sight. He had no food and nothing to drink. And so he prayed to God, and he believed that God was going to rescue him. He said, God has told me that he is going to rescue me. And just a few minutes later, a small Coast Guard boat drives up. And the men on the boat call out to him and say, We're here to rescue you. We're so glad you're alive. And he says to them, No thanks. God is going to rescue me. And a few minutes later, after they drive off, he hears the hum of a helicopter. And the helicopter, uh, the person in the helicopter calls down from a megaphone and says, We're so glad we found you. We're going to lower a ladder for you to climb up to safety. And he looks up and he says, no thanks. God is going to rescue me. And so the helicopter flew off. And the next morning, very hungry, very thirsty, the man hears some voices and a small canoe with a couple of neighbors rides up and they say, hey, we've got a seat for one more and we've got some food and some water for you. You can survive. And he says exhaustedly, no, God is going to rescue me. And so they paddle off. Well, that night, the man died. And when he met God, he said angrily, why am I here? You said you were going to rescue me. And God said to him, I gave you a Coast Guard boat, a helicopter, and I sent you a canoe. What more did you want? You see, we often think that God forms us only through extraordinary means. But even history attests that God molds his people into beautiful vessels through ordinary routines. I think that when we meet the Lord, he'll show us the span of our lives. And only then will we fully realize how true this is. We'll say, you mean that when I was squirming and getting impatient, trying to pray the daily office, I was sitting in the glory of your presence? You mean that when that person kept interrupting me at work and being a nuisance, you were trying to give me an opportunity to be more like your son? You mean that when I was just praying, bored through the Psalms, when I was just reading through the Psalms, you were trying to give me a new delight in life? You mean that when I was confessing my sins half-heartedly on Sundays that you were there casting darkness out of my soul and pronouncing me as pure and clean as your Son, Jesus? Wow! I think only then will we fully realize the importance of, of the ordinary and how God works through such things. In our gospel today, Jesus said that whoever gives a cold cup of water to one of his followers will not lose his reward. You see what he's saying? I pay attention to even the small and ordinary things, and I use them to form a new character in my children. Remember Martha and Mary? They love Jesus. Jesus is so cool, we've got to have him over for dinner. And they have him over. And Martha, is. she just feels the need to impress Jesus with an extraordinarily clean house and a wonderful dinner, and she's running around and she's caught up in her task. But Mary just sits at the feet of Jesus, just listening to him, drinking in what he teaches. And Jesus tells Martha, You're so lost in the extraordinary. Don't get lost in that stuff. Mary's not being lazy or wasting time. She's actually chosen the best thing. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me because it means that we can start seeing the small, ordinary things as opportunities to grow in our walk with Jesus. We can see our worship together with new eyes, eyes that see the presence and power of God forming us through the prayers of the liturgy, through the prayers of the people, through the reading of his word, through the breaking of bread and sharing of a common cup. and When we open our eyes to these opportunities to, as Paul says, present our members to God, there we will find Jesus loving us, changing us, making us more like him. And his story self-denial and obedience to God will more and more become our own. Pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Open our eyes to see your work on us today through these rhythms, these graceful rhythms of prayer and study and listening and breaking bread together. Lord, help us to know that you are here speaking words of transformation to each of us. As we go out into our week, Lord, show us where we've been missing those little ordinary things where you've been trying to speak to us, where you've been trying to show us your glory and show us who we are in you so that the world would be attracted to that transformation that they see and that others would want to come to know your son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.